And our passage this morning is exactly the same as it was last Sunday. This morning we're going to look at Genesis chapter 3 verses 1 through 7 and then we're going to leap ahead again to the first chapter of Matthew's gospel and we'll read verses 18 through 25. So as you're turning and finding either or both of those places, young Christians, young theologians, these are the questions that I have for you this morning. This morning we're going to talk about nakedness, but not in a silly way. So I want you to listen and see if you can hear what we mean when we talk about nakedness. Or you can listen for this. We're going to talk about leaves. What are the leaves? And what kinds of leaves do you like to use? Listen for any of those things and then talk about them with your parents later today or later in the week as you're getting ready for our Christmas celebration. This is the good news of Jesus the Savior from the beginning of the Old Testament and also from the beginning of the New Testament. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, or you will die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Now from Matthew 1. The birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, And they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And when Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son. And he called his name Jesus. Pray with me. Lord, our God, you are not afraid or hesitant or unable or unwilling 
to put your word in the frame of an infant. Now we ask that you will be none of these things, neither hesitant or afraid, unable or unwilling to put your word in our hearts. Bring your light into our darkness. Speak peace into our conflict and our clamor. And bring grace into our disgrace. And all through Jesus, the Son whom you have given. And we will give you thanks. We ask it in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Spirit. Amen. Would you be seated? I didn't read you the most important verse. The verse I didn't read to you is the verse that closes Genesis 2. The man and the woman were naked and unafraid. What that means is they had nothing to hide. They had no shame at all. But seven verses into the next chapter, and it's a different story. The man and the woman are hiding from each other, and they're hiding from the creation, and they're hiding from their God, wearing leaves as coverings. Last weekend, a little person in my life grabbed me by the hand, and she pulled me down to her level, and she whispered in my ear, Can you take me Christmas shopping? And I said, Sure. And she said, because I can't drive. (laughs) And I said, I think I can help you out. This afternoon then, she said. This afternoon. Don't forget. I won't forget. So we went Christmas shopping. What are you looking for, I asked her as we drove around. I'm not sure. She said, how about something like this? And I made some suggestions. Yeah, that sounds good. But where would we get something like that? I know a place. And so we arrived at the shop and she found what she was looking for and she carried it up to the clerk and I paid for it. And we walked out of the store. She had her bag in her hand. And her head was held high, and she said, this is perfect. This is just what I wanted to give. And my baby girl taught me two theological truths that I love to forget. And the first one is, what we think we can do for ourselves, we cannot do for ourselves. And the second one is, what we cannot do for ourselves... Our God loves to do for us. And what we see from the man and the woman in the garden is a denial of both truths. They don't believe that they can't do it for themselves. And they don't believe that God loves to do for us what we cannot do. And when you don't believe those two things, you hide. When I was in high school, a buddy's parents went away on a week-long cruise that they had earned. He was mostly responsible, 
with mostly responsible friends, so his parents let him stay in the house alone. So the Friday night of the week that they were off on their cruise, we went out and bought cigars and brought them back to the house and smoked them in the family room while we were watching TV. We opened the windows of the family room, thinking that the breeze would sweep all the smell out. His parents would never know what had gone on there. It was January in Michigan, so the breeze that blew through was a nor'easter. But it didn't smell. So we sat there in the winter we had brought into the house, proud of ourselves, smoking our cigars. And we'd only forgotten one thing, ashtrays. And the ash on my cigar got a little bit too long, and it fell off and burned a hole in the cushion of the couch where I was sitting. My friend reacted predictably, hey, what are you doing? My mom's going to kill me, blah, blah, blah. I reacted as predictably, relax, I'll take care of it, I know what I'm doing. So with my cigar clamp between my teeth, I got up and flipped the cushion over and slapped it back into place and said, she'll never know. So the next week, his parents came back from their cruise, all suntans and smiles, and his mother walked right into the family room And her intuitive mothering senses kicked in and her eye began to twitch and she said, something's not right, something's wrong. And she walked right over to the cushion and flipped it right side up and found the hole. I was hiding, naked and afraid. I should have been naked and unafraid. I should have just said, it was me, I did it, we were wrong, would you forgive me? But there's something in us that thinks we should run and hide, and hiding never works. And it's the lesson of Genesis chapter 3, when God comes to the garden to walk with the man and the woman in the cool of the day, to be With them, they are hidden in the undergrowth. And God calls out, Adam, where are you? God knows where the man is. But he wants the man to feel that hiding is never the answer. But the frightened heart is always convinced hiding is the best we've got. So we hide the evidence. Or we avoid the one we've offended. Or we ignore the reality of our wrong altogether. We simply say, it wasn't wrong at all. Or we justify it and we make excuses. Or we point the finger and pass the blame. Just somebody, please, hand me a leaf to use. Doesn't matter what it is. Any leaf will do. It doesn't matter if it won't even work. Somebody, please, just help me hide. And it all comes from shame. Shame is the knowledge that I have done wrong. I've sinned. 
and I can't undo it. I can't get it back. Or we could say that shame is true guilt without true assurance of forgiveness. Or we could say that shame is the realization that this thing makes me unlovable. Or we could say shame is I've broken my own heart and I'm completely unable to make it whole again. Thoughts that are so terrifying, the reflex is hiding. But look, as soon as the man and the woman sin and they cover it up, the good news is there to answer them. They are called out of their hiding, first of all, and that alone should leave you breathless. God did not abandon them. He called them out of hiding because His intent was still to live with them, to have them as His loved children. And secondly, He gives them the good news in allowing them to feel the effect of their sin. Listen, that's grace. Some of us want to deny that, but that's grace. To break our hearts for our sin, in order to turn our hearts away from our sin, He's actually making our hearts more like His own when He breaks them. And finally, he gives them the good news by taking their coverings, which cover nothing and can't possibly work, and he gives them better coverings. In verse 21, he gives them skins to wear. He sheds blood and covers them with sacrifice. What a relief to know that our God will give to us better coverings, coverings that He can accept coverings that satisfy even Him. It's the promise that shakes the universe. It's so unexpected. He knows what to do with our shame. As we've been doing every week throughout December, we fast forward and jump ahead from the beginning of the Old Testament to the beginning of the New Testament. And when we get to Matthew's Gospel... The same old problem is waiting for us there. Shame is camping out in the middle of the passage. But the question is, to whom do we assign it? To whom does shame belong? Not Mary. She hasn't done anything wrong. Mary was minding her own business, getting ready for her wedding day, And an angel appears to her and announces that she's going to give birth to a baby who is the Messiah of God. How can this be since I've never known a man? I don't know how these things go in angel world, but let's review some basic biology, Mary is saying. This is impossible. And the angel explains the Holy Spirit will overshadow you. And the child will be spiritually conceived and implanted. Out of nothing, the supreme everything will gestate and grow in Mary's womb. And the baby will fill up her belly in order to fill up our flesh with holiness. And from there, he will fill up the cosmos with glory and worship. But no shame for Mary. The shame doesn't belong to her. And there's no shame for Joseph either. He hasn't done anything wrong. 
Joseph was simply marking the days off his calendar, dreaming of his bride on their wedding day. And then this, Mary's awkward announcement that she's pregnant. But Joseph, it's not what you think. I swear, the child is God's son. But how could any man in his right mind believe that? Even a faithful and devout man. Joseph's affection for Mary is deeply wounded and he feels betrayed and hurt and lost and shattered, but not shame. Above all, he's not vengeful. He doesn't want Mary to be made into a public spectacle. He's not willing to hang a scarlet A upon her and turn her into a Nazarene version of Hester Prynne, although that was his legal right. He could have made her an object of community scorn under the law, but there's this tender, tear-soaked verse, verse 19. And her husband, being a just man, resolved to divorce her quietly because he was unwilling to put her to shame. He was unwilling to put her to shame. And then the angel comes to Joseph in a dream while he's having his lawyers draw up all the papers. And the angel tells Joseph, it's just as Mary has said. The son she will bear is the Messiah. And he's been given a Messiah's name, Jesus, the one who saves. And now we can see it. Joseph is a glimpse of the heart of God Joseph's treatment of Mary is the gospel for us. Whose shame is it we're talking about here? It's our shame. And the gospel in the story is this. Our God is unwilling to put us away in our shame. It's His right We've taken up with other lovers and we've sired and birthed all kinds of illegitimate offspring that wound the faithful, doting heart of God. But then he does the utterly surprising. He refuses to put us away in our disgrace, which would be one expression of his being just. But it's not the only expression of his being just, and it's certainly not the best. Here's the best. On the cross, Jesus' nakedness was my nakedness. And on the cross, all the mocking and the scorn and reproach thrown on him were meant for me. And on the cross, he becomes my fear and my trembling, and my sense of rejection. And on the cross beams, and under the bite of the nails, and the frown of judgment, He is my being trapped in sin with no escape. He makes Himself all my shame, every last fiber of it is felt in His flesh. But there's one difference here. He is not hiding. Not the way I try to hide. In fact, 
There are no leaves to cover himself with on the cross. No ineffective coverings like I fashioned for myself. The cross is a leafless tree. And Jesus suffers all of this to make himself my only covering now. Jesus is the one who was glimpsed in the garden when God shed blood and covered the man and the woman in skins and said with a kiss, I know what to do with your shame. If you carry it, it will kill you, so I will carry it. And the cross is whispered in Matthew's Gospel in the crisis of Joseph because through it, God is saying, I will not put you away in shame. Not even your shame can tear my heart from you. It cannot turn my love from you. And over all this, with dying breaths, Jesus preaches a sermon in very few words. In Greek, it's just one word. In English, it's three. It is finished. So my shame is no longer shame. My shame is just my history. It's just the place where God has triumphed in me with his unbelievable love. The incarnation is the undoing of Eden. The incarnation is the radical reversal of Eden's deepest ruin. Because the incarnation, the Word of God coming in the flesh, in the person and work of Jesus the Christ, the incarnation is the end of my shame. And it's the end of your shame too. Jesus was born in humiliation and he wore humiliation without ever sinking in it to carry out God's decree. I will not put my people away in shame. I will not lose my people in shame. My love will find them in their shame. My love will overcome their shame. Shame only exists because we believe no one could ever love me like this. But where we encounter God's love in the gospel, shame turns into nothing more than a bully that has been overpowered and now it has to turn and flee. And that's worth having a holiday over. The incarnation is our wonderful return to naked unafraidness. Very few people actually believe this, but the entire church is supposed to be filled with this belief that in the born love of Jesus, the crucified love of Jesus, we're actually returned to the last verse of Genesis 2, to be naked and not afraid in the least, to be able to say, I am fully known and I am fully loved which is what we all long for, but so few of us can actually ever accept. One of our baptized families was half joking, half lamenting over their experience at the last baptism given to one of their children. 
They were talking about our dishonesty in baptism. We stand up at the front of the church, and in our vows we say, we desperately need Jesus. But then we all like to appear as if we don't need Jesus at all. Perfectly pressed and groomed and well-behaved and dignified. But if you want to know what my picture of the perfect baptism would be, it would look like this. The whole family would roll down to the front, come to the font, in the middle of a knockdown, drag-out fight. Mom and dad screaming at the tops of their lungs at each other, calling each other names. You've never loved me. How could you? Throwing accusations and insults at each other. And the kids are in tears. They too are fighting, kicking, biting, pulling hair. The littlest one is squirming to be free, to be turned loose, to have its own way. And they come all the way down to the font. And over the top of it, the pastor who meets them there yells, Enough! And then he says, Even in this, Jesus loves you. Even in this, Jesus loves you. And the water is applied. And tears roll down cheeks. And repentance is offered up. And songs are sung. And embraces and kisses are shared. That would be powerful baptism because that's the gospel. But what we're to see in all of this is that those parts of us that were most desperate to hide, those secrets were most jealous and determined to keep. Those parts of us that we're sure will drive love away from us. Those are the very places where Jesus wants to meet us and touch us, and love us, and heal us. And what's more, those are the parts of us that Jesus wants to make public. He wants to make those parts of us public community property. Not so that people can point and whisper, but so that all of us can point and worship and say, His overwhelming love has found us even in this. His love has overcome even this. I'm sure there are some of us here this morning whose heads are always hanging. We know our guilt and we bear the weight of it. And we're cornered in it and we can't get out. And the good news for you is You're not supposed to get yourself out. It was never the plan that you would ever find your way out. God put animal skins on the trembling bareness of the man and the woman. And he put a savior in a manger and on a cross to cover your trembling bareness too. And you're not remembering the first of our often forgotten theological truths this morning. You can't do for yourself what you think you can do. And that's why you feel ashamed and afraid 
and your head hangs. Most of us here are hiding. We have a whole wardrobe of leaves. I just won't think about my sin. I'm just going to keep up a steady mantra of God is love, but I'm going to leave it undefined because it's too hard for me to think about how His love is personal and particular, even though it bears mention that God never leaves His love undefined. I challenge you to find one passage in the Bible where God is generic in stating His love to us. Find one passage where He's vague about His love. Instead, he speaks to us in terms that are very close and sometimes very uncomfortable, but all very necessary. This is how my love will find you. Or we reach into our leafy wardrobe and we resort to the old standby defensiveness. We always find a way to cover our sin by making someone else's sin look larger But that's not the gospel. It says nothing about God's white, hot, passionate love for His people. And you're not remembering the second of our often forgotten theological truths this morning. God loves to do for you what you cannot do for yourself. He loves to do For you, what you cannot do for yourself. He's not trying to trap you in your shame to put you away. He is trapping you in your shame to love you in it and to relieve you of it. And then there are a few of us who are repenting. That's where naked unafraidness is restored to us. That's where what was lost in the garden is regained. To stand before God, naked, uncovered, able to say, here is my sin. Here's my heart played out in these actions. Here are my wrong loves, offensive to you in these ways. And we list them out. And then we say, these loves are wrong because they deny your goodness and your power and your love. We're not just supposed to stand before Him naked and uncovered. We're to stand before Him unafraid. Able to say in the next breath, but even with all of this pumping out of my heart and working itself out in my actions, painting me in a corner of guilt, even so, you're not afraid to love me. You're not pushing me away. You have pulled me close with your shame-absorbing cross. Repentance says, I have much to be ashamed about. I just have no reason to be ashamed because of how you have loved me fully and finally in Jesus. Repentance is able to say, love me not because I deserve it, but just because I need it. Repentance is able to say, my head's not hanging, that's unbelief. And my instinct is no longer to cover and hide. That's a denial of who you are, a denial of your promise. 
I'm loved in Jesus. And think just for a minute what this teaches us of forgiveness. Forgiveness is not settling the past so much. It's the delight to overcome the shame of another with unreasonable love. Overcoming shame with cross-shaped love. Suffering love that delights in nothing more than lifting away the shame of someone else. Skeptics, what would make you turn away from loving another? If you found this out about another person, what is it that would make you say, I can no longer love you? Or let's make it more personal. What in you would turn another's love away from you? Jesus has come to love you in those very things. And that's how you know that it's love and not talk. Not even the things that can turn your love away or would turn the love of another away from you can turn the love of Jesus away. His cross proves He will love you and leave no room for shame. And Christmas is His invitation to you to finally come into that love. I don't do it well, but I have started to put my hands on my daughter's shoulders when I'm correcting her. And at first, she braces herself and she tenses up. But I leave my hands there and I tell her in detail what she's done wrong and I tell her how she's offended someone done wrong to another in the family at school in the neighborhood the surprise of it all is that after I tell her all of that tell her how I love her and she's not being pushed away she's being held close and little by little I feel her soften under my hands and she takes a step into me and another and before long she's put her head on my chest And she's thrown her arms around my waist. And her whole weight falls on me. And she melts into me. Fully known. Sin and all. Fully loved. Sin and all. That's naked. And unafraid. And that's how you've been loved in the incarnation, in God with us, who made it his joy to endure the cross, despising your shame. Joy to hang from the cross, to lift your shame.
And that's worth a holiday. Don't you think? In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Lord Jesus, we are your people. And we have much to be ashamed at, but no reason to be ashamed because of the way you have loved us. Lift our heads. Take away our hiding. And now with the table, as we eat the good news in bread and wine, as we take it into ourselves and ingest it in our hearts again, hold out to us the unbelievable, the unthinkable, the eternally gracious promise that we can stand before you naked and unafraid because of how you've loved us in Jesus the Son. And give us more of this, not just in our profession of faith, but in our living before you and in our living together. Naked, but not afraid. Stir in our hearts. Awaken those of us who have been asleep too long. Revive us in the good news. And for those of us who are lost, find us. For the dead, make them alive. And all that the worship of God may increase in us. And our joy in the Lord may build and grow and have no end. And above all, thank you for lifting our shame.